Greetings, listeners. This is Daniel Denver, the host of The Dig. This month, we're launching a new show. It's a series of narrative stories. We'll publish one every month. If you heard our last series, Antibody, in 2020, it's like that. Instead of COVID, though, it's about everything. It's a place for documentary reporting, personal narrative, and experimental stories about all the topics we normally cover on The Dig, but in a different format. Our first story is about Egypt, which, after years of protest beginning in 2011, has seen intense state backlash and an authoritarian restoration. Omar Etman started working on this story while spending a lot of afternoons on his grandmother's balcony with her and her neighbors. In the story, all their names have been changed. Here's Omar. My grandmother lives in Cairo, in an upper-middle-class neighborhood called Sheraton. It was named after the hotel that occupied the big, glass-walled building at the neighborhood's edge. The building's now a Hilton, but the name stuck. Sheraton was planned during a construction boom in the 1980s as an extension of Heliopolis, one of Cairo's earliest suburbs. Unlike the other new developments that took root in the open desert, Sheraton was contained, boxed in by the airport and a military airfield. It made for a walkable, quiet neighborhood. My grandmother had a balcony. She could walk through the neighborhood to meet friends. And across the street from her apartment, there was a garden, a kilometer-long green space tucked between two roads. Can you describe the garden to me when it was at its most beautiful? First of all, it's, uh, it looks like very beautiful, you know, the green, the, the, uh, the flowers, uh, it's very nice. It gives uh, a picture of uh, life. <laughs> this past year, my grandma, who I and everyone call Sito, spent time living with our family in the United States. In May, I flew back with her to Cairo. As we were headed to her apartment from the airport, the driver stopped on an unfamiliar-looking street. You're here, he said. My grandma and I looked at each other. Here where? Sorry to say I found a change. I didn't know my uh, building. (laughs) Imagine. The garden was gone. In its place was a long pile of dirt. Now, Sito spends most of her days on the balcony staring at the place where the garden used to be. All the neighbors do this, look at the dirt pile, and talk about the garden. You know, this area is a desert. Basically, it was a desert. And there was only few useless uh, small trees in front of us in the streets. And uh, so we decided that we need some greens, as simple as that. Dr. Rami, who lives in the apartment down the hall, is the building's unofficial doctor. Everyone calls him when they need their blood pressure taken. He was there in the early 2000s when neighbors first decided to turn the median across the street into something green. And we decided that uh, with uh, some sort of personal efforts, we'll collect money from each other and uh, try to put few trees in front of our houses and uh, cultivate the area uh, in front of us. At the same time, the buildings on either side of theirs started helping out with the garden too. The other two actually were working better than us, that is the truth. In fact, we were actually the laziest, the laziest of the three. No one was really being lazy, though. They ran pipes under the road to supply water, 
They designed a map of the garden, deciding which plants would go where. Each building chose different trees and flowers for the section in front of them. Sito's building had chosen trees with pink flowers. And within about a couple of years, actually, the garden was really fantastic. You know, but at the end of the day, uh, after uh, 10, 15 years, it was fully cultivated, fully uh, green, uh, and very, very pleasant indeed. Dr. Rami remembers the time when it was featured in a film. It was so attractive that it even attracted the, the, the cinema people, you know. They came here and uh, uh, they took some shots, you know, in front of us. And it was very nice for us watching them from the balconies, you know, how the, the cameras were following the, the actors and the actresses and so on. By the late 2000s, Sheraton wasn't a suburb anymore. It had been fully absorbed into the city's sprawl. But residents of Sitto Street felt insulated. They had the garden. Dr. Rami would bring chairs and sit in the garden with his children. Nader, the jeweler from next door, spent evenings after work on his balcony looking onto the greenery. Sara, our upstairs neighbor, walked its entire length each day. She especially enjoyed her walk on Friday mornings when she'd watch the group of people who had gathered to practice parkour. Egypt has never been rich with designated public space. For much of its modern history, public space was not a formal urban planning consideration. But lately, even the smallest public spaces are disappearing. It's a pattern, one that started over 12 years ago, after tens of thousands of people occupied city centers across Egypt. Protests started in January 2011. President Hosni Mubarak's regime had spent decades imposing neoliberal economic policies that slashed subsidies on everyday goods, loosened labor laws, and gutted social services like healthcare. Those connected to Mubarak and his family got enormously rich, and nearly everyone else saw their standard of living fall. Tahrir Square then was in part an explosion against years of growing inequality. 18 days into the protests, Mubarak stepped down as president. He was later tried for his complicity in the killing of some 900 protesters. His removal triggered what would become nearly three years of nationwide political unrest and possibility. The uprisings showed the power of masses of people gathering in public space. Student groups, political parties, civil society, and ordinary people filled the streets to debate the shape of a new Egypt. For Karim Ghalib, an architect and urban researcher who grew up in Cairo, the revolution completely changed his relationship to the city. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is where it started. I think my interest in the city and my interest in um, studying and understanding Cairo, understanding and seeing the different layers of Cairo started by being present in a space with people that I don't know, where I shared food with, where I shared conversations with, where I shared laughs, where I shared tears, where I shared um, uh, running away from the tear gas. <laughs> I was 21 years old. And it was probably one of the few times I remember that it, I met and I've seen people and I've talked to strangers that I don't think there will be any context or any space that will contain us other than the public space. The action in itself is about being in a place that is a public one, that is not owned by any so-called private sector or individual, like, you know, property. Omnia Khalil, 
an anthropologist studying the geographic transformation of Cairo, told me the revolution was defined by the people's reclamation of public space. So this is the very basic constitution, constitution in terms of like a constitution of the revolution in itself as an act is about being in the public space, talking about whatever you want. You don't surveil yourself. You are, there is no censorship. There is nothing. Wherever the people went, the space became public and the people were everywhere. In June 2012, Muslim Brotherhood candidate Mohamed Morsi became president in an election that was ostensibly democratic but rife with corruption. He quickly provoked mass discontent. Morsi declared himself immune from judicial review and hurried through a new constitution written by Islamists. He did this amid ongoing sectarian attacks against Coptic Christians, rampant police violence, and more frequent electricity outages. The following summer, as his first anniversary in power neared, millions of people took to the street to demand his departure. Days later, claiming to act in the will of the people, then Minister of Defense Abdel Fattah al-Sisi staged a coup against Morsi. After the chaos of the Muslim Brotherhood, many Egyptians welcomed al-Sisi as a savior. Al-Sisi's eventual and seemingly inevitable rise to president followed a months-long crackdown on dissent. As head of a newly emboldened military, he ushered in a new, more violent era of authoritarianism. He imposed a program of economic austerity, quickly pursued Muslim Brotherhood members and political activists, and strictly enforced a 2013 law effectively banning public protest. By the end of his first term, in 2018, his list of opponents had grown to include nearly anyone who criticized the government, and anyone whose behavior was seen as a threat. Many of Al-Sisi's crackdowns are hidden from public view, marked mostly by the resulting absence. A blogger disappeared for a tweet, an activist exiled, a girl jailed for dancing, just dancing on TikTok. But even when they're not stated explicitly, you can see the priorities of the securitized state and the changing infrastructure of Cairo. All over, leafy trees and patches of green have given way to bridges and highways that connect wealthy suburbs. Around the new bridges, cafes and gas stations owned by the military have overtaken the street. And the government has raised entire poor and working class neighborhoods to clear space for new military-led redevelopment of market-rate housing. The new infrastructure serves a dual purpose, enriching state-backed developers while burying public space. It's becoming more and more impossible to walk in the street. You have to be sheltered in a car, in an AC, away from the noise, away from the people. And this is how how you move between one point to the other in the city. Like, socially, this makes the sense of the city more disappear because, like, then people don't necessarily meet. They don't interact in a public space. Everyone meets at homes. Then it's a very isolated social life in the city, and it fragments society somehow, fragmenting people and isolating them somehow. With public space disappearing, fewer areas to walk, fewer places to be on the street, fewer places to be without spending money, Karim says he now moves through a city he loves like he's trying to avoid it. You don't, you don't see the city anymore. Like you, don't, you don't live in the city. You don't, you don't have anything to do with anything that's happening in the city. 
except for if you have work, you go to work. If you have a school, you go to the school. If you have uh, friends, you visit them. This is it. Yeah, the city is absent. Wealthy neighborhoods like Sitos were once insulated from these kinds of development. Now, almost no public space anywhere in the city is left untouched. Wow, this is so cool. It's also, as you might suspect, rather expensive. I am so proud that I'm able to support The Dig Presents really high-quality, sound-rich radio work with fascinating analysis and great politics. And I'm able to do that because listeners like you support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. We do have some advertising, but this podcast is overwhelmingly a listener-supported one. If you like The Dig Presents... Please contribute now. We've committed to doing this first season. If you want there to be a second season, and I hope you do, we need to raise enough funds to make that happen. We also have thank you gifts like our weekly email newsletter, books, tote bags, and mugs. Please take a moment and contribute what feels right, right now, at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. This episode, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication. You've probably seen a lot of what they've published online, but they also have a beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 70,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. Their new issue on nationalism is out now, and I highly recommend that you check it out. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. Okay, back to Omar. It started with a few cones and a cryptic sign placed outside the garden. It said street work would happen. A few days later, in the middle of the night, the bulldozers arrived. Here's Dr. Rami again. We saw the people destroying things. What's going on? Oh, we have orders to widen the street. That's all. By morning, the red brick sidewalk that lined the garden was destroyed. Residents asked the municipal authority what was going on and were told the road is being widened. As the construction continued, the bulldozers inched closer to the garden. Okay, leave the garden, please. Oh, no, the order is to destroy the whole garden. Neighborhood representatives returned to the municipal authority and called every powerful person in the neighborhood they knew. They never found out where, exactly, the order for demolition came from, let alone why or how to stop it. When we we meet the engineers, what are you doing? You know, this is wrong. He said, oh, sir, please, we are performing orders from the higher authorities. We have nothing. We cannot cannot help you. We cannot help you. This is what the answer. Their panic quickly sunk into resignation. For years, they had been watching as public space around Sheraton and other neighborhoods in Cairo disappeared. They knew how this ended. Orders. Orders. 
okay, what can we say about orders? You know, we say nothing. You know, we have to fight and get a lawyer and uh, uh, make a, make a big uh, big issue. No, we will lose at the end. This is a decision came from higher influential people who think that this is the best for the area. I don't agree with them at all, but this is what happened. By the end of the summer, the garden was gone. The trees were ripped out. The neighbors told me, with some pride, that it took the workers so long to destroy the garden because they struggled with the strong granite walls. Some of the neighbors wouldn't talk to me for this story. When I asked our neighbor Sara about the demolition, she looked at me like, how dare you? How dare I ask about something so intimate? More than anyone else, it was Sara who rallied the residents in support of the garden. She declined to be interviewed. Instead, she sent me pages of handwritten notes. In one, she wrote, The day of the demolition, I went down and stood in front of the dozer and tried to debate with them about not demolishing the place, or at least removing the trees in a suitable way so that they can be planted somewhere else. They destroyed the soil. They made it impossible to create another garden. This very tiny scale of this garden that you, in front of your grandmother's house that I mean everyone was taking care of, it's like, was this garden really a, a threat to the security? You feel like as if it's all nonsense. Umnaya Khalil again. Right? How it's a threat. How those very tiny forms of participation in terms of making a neighborhood became a threat. But this is part of understanding commons as, as a threat to any regime that is all about authoritization or all about a totalitarian regime. What does it mean? That anything that has a communal aspect or a public aspect where citizens are collaborating to making it, it becomes a threat. A decade ago, at the start of the revolution, Sheraton residents of all ages would gather in the garden, their plastic chairs in tow. Children played soccer, while the adults discussed how they would protect their neighborhood from the people they saw on television clashing with police. To them, like many upper-middle-class Egyptians, the revolution marked a disruption to an order that had served them well enough. So they didn't see themselves as revolutionary actors, and they definitely didn't see their tiny garden as a threat to the state. And maybe it wasn't. Right now, Government actions have become even less predictable. It's hard to know why anything happens, to disentangle a logic, what's counter-revolutionary and what's just for profit. It's possible that the garden and the neighbors were just in the way. These days, most people don't have time to search for explanations anyway. They're just trying to get by. In the past 10 years, the circle of Egyptians struggling to stay afloat and out of the government's crosshairs widened significantly. Since 2016, the government has devalued the currency multiple times as a condition of receiving loans from the IMF. In the past year alone, the currency has lost half its value, and the price of some basic goods, like eggs and milk, has quadrupled. With recent inflation, entire swaths of middle and upper middle class people, public sector employees, professionals, office workers, people who obeyed the current regime's erratic orders, started being drowned too. It's a contradictory path, 
an authoritarian capitalist government ruling for the rich, until increasingly, it's only ruling for itself. Lately, Sito and her neighbors are grappling with a new sense of disempowerment. It makes you wonder about a lot of things, I must say. Yes, of course. Yes, yes. It makes it, it make you really feel sad that, uh, that you are a citizen of this country, you are uh, uh, paying taxes, and uh, you are a very uh, active uh, 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 participant in the uh, country as a general, whatever, as a doctor or engineer or whatever, and still you have no saying in where are you living. In the place you are living, you have no saying. It's, of course, it's, it's, it's miserable. It's just a miserable feeling. Occasionally, a post in a neighborhood Facebook group will restart discussions about efforts to cultivate the garden. But commenters quickly dismiss the idea. Everything's too expensive, everyone's too busy, and the government probably has other plans for the space anyway. Without the garden, Neder, the jeweler next door, says his life has gotten smaller. We are now living in something closed. It was as if I had an apartment with a garden. Even if I didn't go down to the garden, I took in its outlook. It made a difference for me. I lost the garden. Now I just have an apartment. Last year, Sito's building council decided to install security cameras. It was a big investment for a council that usually agrees on nothing. Now, any activity outside our building is cause for suspicion. What type of person would hang out by a pile of dirt anyway? El Sisi's biggest project is a new administrative capital of Egypt an entire city under construction east of Cairo. The megacity is sold to the people in superlatives, tallest skyscraper in Africa, a park twice the size of New York's Central Park, largest military complex in the Middle East, called the Octagon. Many of the new highways in Cairo are lined with advertisements for residential compounds there, promises of a new Egyptian life. From crowded, polluted Cairo, it's sometimes hard to imagine such a place could be real. On a late afternoon last summer, Sito, my cousin, my aunts and I, fed up with having nowhere to go, decided we wanted to see it ourselves. Forty minutes and two checkpoints later, we arrived by car at the city that has been open and operating in a limited capacity for several years. Sito, seated beside me, craned her head out of the window. The city was nearly empty. It looked like a movie set. We passed rows of ministerial offices, then a stadium, then a glitzy hotel, then a mosque that was the biggest I'd ever seen, and then 15 minutes later, another mosque that was even bigger. One aunt kept asking versions of the same question, where would someone get tomatoes? Sito was unusually quiet. She didn't reach for her usual defense of his sisi. More than anyone I know, Sito believes in Egypt. For 40 years, her entire adult life, she and her husband were administrative employees of the nationalized cotton spinning and weaving factory in Mahal al-Kubra, a city in the middle of the Nile Delta. Their government jobs, and now pensions, have made their lives possible 
But here, all around us, was a vision of the new republic, an Egypt without Egyptians. The new city quickly fell dark. As I circled in search of an exit, my aunts began to panic, suddenly aware that we were in a deserted place and worried we'd be stopped for trespassing. I talked to Omneya, the anthropologist, about the new capital, and she told me that what's scariest for her is how far it is from the places working-class people, nearly all Egyptians, actually live, and what that separation might mean for political movements in the future. If we can envision that maybe a similar political upheaval, a similar revolution is going to happen in the future, it's going to be impossible that people would walk to the new administrative capital or block those buildings. I mean, I hate to say the word impossible is, is big, but it's imp- geographically it's impossible. As part of my research, I asked the garden watchers to share photos they had taken of it at its peak. I knew the garden only in its final years. I wanted to witness this place they described so tenderly. The flowers, the long expanse of green, the people sitting along the perimeter wall. But in photo after photo, I see scenes of brown. A neighbor from the building next door reaches his phone toward me. In the picture, the garden looks disheveled and tired. Looking at me seriously, he asks, Isn't it beautiful? During the summer, my cousin Mohammed and I took to playing a game from the balcony, taking turns identifying things we saw that were beautiful. Late one night, as dawn approached, we agreed that what's beautiful is whatever shows signs of life. Mohammed noticed the warm, neat row of lights that lined the entrance to the neighboring building and declared it beautiful. I pointed to a man, walking, presumably headed to pray. After some debate, we agreed that the sound of barking dogs is beautiful. As my departure neared, I joined Sito on the balcony as often as possible. She'd asked me when I'd be finished bothering the neighbors, who, most nights, still joined us for tea. As the hours passed, a stream of friends and family would populate the space. I'd rummage the apartment for additional plastic chairs. The dirt pile looks at us now, forebodingly. Every few weeks, there is activity on the mound. A truck unloads one pile of dirt in the area in front of the neighboring building. A crew of men dug a hole, loudly, three mornings in a row, that was so big it could fit a car. A squat telephone pole was erected in its place, and then, two weeks later, taken down in a single morning. For a while, a bright blue cargo container with gold striping was parked across the street. One day in August, I noticed new signs on either end of the garden, jammed into the dirt at an angle. Attention, this land is property of the armed forces. The theories I've heard so far. They're going to turn it into cafes. What else could the parking be for? Or a bridge. Though maybe not a bridge because a mosque shields the road. Or that it'll become a bridge and they'll put cafes under it. Some neighbors say, with a measure of resignation and relief, that it's going to be a dirt pile forever.
That was Omar Etman. He also makes segments for a PBS show for preschoolers called Let's Learn. It'll start airing in April. Omar also wrote an excellent print version of this story for the independent Egyptian news outlet Meta Musser. It'll be published on their website soon. Special thanks to Nihal Al-Sar for input on this story and to Moaz Amir for reading voiceovers. The Dig Presents is produced and edited by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our artwork is by Celia Nagalis. Fact-checking for this episode by Alan Dean. Thank you also to the rest of the Dig team, Alex Lewis, Jackson Roche, Tamuz Frankel, Sylvia Atwood, Theo Riofrancos, and Ben Maybe, and to our partners at Jacobin. We hope you liked this inaugural episode of The Dig Presents. We'll publish another documentary story around this time next month. And you'll be able to find all our episodes on the regular Dig feed, as well as on the feed that's just for this series. Look up and subscribe to The Dig Presents. Please tell us what you thought about this story, and if you liked it, do share it with a friend or friends or talk about it on social media. We're so excited about The Dig Presents and all the stories that we're working on, and we really, really want people to hear them.